Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Now here's a quick quiz. Which body organ weighs about the same as a two-slice kitchen toaster, is colloquially known as the scone, and almost got Descartes in trouble with the Inquisitors. If you said the liver, go back to medical school. It is, of course, the brain, the seat of our emotions, high chair of our thoughts and conductor of our limbs, and, coincidentally, the focus of today's show. First up, we will be speaking with a brain care specialist, or as they like to be known, a neurologist. Doctor, I always find that funny. Dr. Will Lee is a busy neurologist with a particular interest in movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and other neurodegenerative disorders. In fact, in 2012, he was awarded the prestigious Movement Disorder Society of Australia Research Fellowship. Will is going to be chatting with us about some of the latest research and treatments for movement disorders and where the future lies for Parkinson's disease in particular. Associate Professor Samantha Loy is an old-age psychiatrist and neuropsychiatrist working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the University of Melbourne. She works with people who have young-onset neurocognitive disorders such as Huntington's disease and she's published multiple papers on dementia, ageing and the mental health of older adults. Sam is the current Victorian Chair of the Faculty of Old Age Psychiatry, of Psychiatry of Old Age at the College of Psychiatrists. That's the one I'm a member of. And she is also Chair, she's two Chairs, of the Young Onset Dementia Special Interest Group. We'll have loads of things to talk about with Sam a little bit later on in the show, so stay with us for that. Joining me uh, are my co-hosts, Nurse Epipen, and psychologist Kit Kat, who will be bringing their fields, unique perspectives to the discussion. All up, it's going to be a great show, so stick with us for the next hour of Radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Welcome, EpiPen. Oh, good morning, Pow. Deliciously sunny and warm and See, cold. It is. It's been too long. And uh, we've got Kitty Cat. Kit Kat, what do I call you now? You keep Dr. trying to Kit get Kit Kat, yeah. Dr. Kit Kat. I, th- I hope that one sticks. Dr. Kit Kat. Oh, yeah. Kit Kat. Do you know, have they stopped? Didn't they change their ingredients recently, Kit Kat? Did it oh, it's still they? yummy. This yeah. is oh, it's funny. Yeah. Kit Kats yeah. and oh. Kit Kats yeah. and M and M's. I had some last night. They're fantastic. Hey, lots to talk about on the show <laughs> yep. today. Yep. We're going to try and get through a whole bunch of stuff. But as we always do, first up, the medical news with our catch-up segment with Dr. Kit Kat. Yes. Um, thank you, Mal. So I guess this news comes from an <clears> article <throat> in the conversation in the um, that was actually published a few days ago. Um, and my friend and my peer colleague, um, Inga, was one of the um, authors of this. Oh, really? Wow. So a little bit of a plug there. Um, and so this news is about how the cold weather, or we might perceive that during the cold weather, our joints become more sore. And so... No, I'm smiling at you because definitely <laughs> yeah. perceive, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, this article discusses and highlights actually that um, musculoskeletal conditions involving joint pain are rather common in Australia. The stats they cited is one in three Australians experience this, which I think is quite remarkably common. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there is this kind of narrative that in the cold weather our joint pain becomes worse. Um, but this article highlights that that's only one factor that might be contributing to our joint pain. What, the temperature? Yes. Right. Yeah. In- Are we talking all ages here? <clears throat> um, that's a great question. And I'll leave you to follow up and click on the article yourself, EpiPen. Give that article some reads. Okay. <laughs> um, but other factors that they uh, this article discusses that contribute to pain or perceived pain during winter include changes in sleep, behavioural patterns, mood, and we know mood can be impacted by the seasons, mm. um, physical activity, lack of vitamin D and the perception of the weather. And so there's a tricky cycle that this article highlights is that because it's colder weather, we're perhaps moving uh. less and exercising less. Um, and so our joints feel sore. And when our joints feel sore, we might be more hesitant to exercise and move because there's the fear that 
we might be making the pain worse. Um, But actually um, exercising and moving helps build function, strength and mobility in our joints um, and it's actually good to to exercise. Yeah. And so they very helpfully highlight three um, suggestions um, in trying to increase your movement during winter where mm. it might be reduced and such as... Can I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Because it's always a competition with oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> warm, no, warm. Wear warm clothes? That's not one they suggested, but it's well, a good okay, idea. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Okay, I'll shut up now. You keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? What did they recommend... <laughs> that could help um, manage pain in your joints during the cooler months? Um, Some heat packs. That's also a good suggestion, Mm. but not the one that they provide. Just get going, for God's sake. So it's just talking about, I guess, achieving um, and creating yourself smaller goals in terms Uh, of movement. So perhaps parking your car further away from the supermarket, uh, um, walking, get moving, increase movement, and then further away again so you can build up your resistance to exercise or your tolerance of exercise, setting goals and doing movement movement that's meaningful, valued, and also chatting to friends or health professionals to help kind of set those movement goals to help keep the, you There's a lot in that opportunistic exercise. Yes, but, yeah. that's right, that's in- right. Incidental exercise, incidental exercise. yeah, rather than drive somewhere. In the supermarket, <laughs> get your potatoes in each arm and <laughs> do some lunges around the <laughs> fruit and vegetable section. I do a bit of yoga in the fruit and vegetable section yeah. as you're yeah. leaning over. Okay. Uh, no, so, seriously, I've got yeah. this thing with... Um, emptying the dishwasher and putting plates in the dishwasher just to engage the core and treat it as a Pilates or not Pilates, treat it as a core exercise. Like, you know, do the core, put the plates in, do the core, put the plates in. Nice. You could, your pelvic floor exercises there. I should write a book about about this. I wouldn't sell very well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio, we have Dr. Will Lee. Um, Will, we are very excited to have you as a guest today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into neurology and what you do on a day-to-day basis? So I got into neurology because I find the clinical aspect of neurology very attractive. Uh, it, I suppose it's one of the few branches in in medicine that still relies heavily on your clinical skills, particularly in the area of uh, movement disorders. Um, we make diagnosis based on clinical assessment, so it's as much a, an art as a as science. So that's really what attracted me to neurology and particularly movement disorders. Uh, on a day to day basis, um, I mostly consult in the outpatients. Uh, so I see lots of patients with um, Parkinson's disease, but also uh, various other abnormal movement and also a bunch of other neurodegenerative diseases. Mm-hmm. And this is at the Austin Hospital? Uh, no, that's through Eastern Health. Eastern Health, yep. yep. Okay. And what's the, oh, you see, is Parkinson's disease the most common thing yes. that you see? Yeah. Do, would you like to tell us a little bit about that disease and the history and the um, epidemiology and treatment? So I suppose Parkinson's traditionally is viewed as a condition that affects the elderly, but we, I certainly see a lot of patients with young onset and early onset Parkinson's. Um, so the, the age of onset really range probably from the mid-30s to late 80s. Wow. Um, obviously, mid, Sorry, mid-30s? Yeah, well. yeah. So Gee, that's young. So certainly you've got a few patients with really onset, really young onset Parkinson's. Yeah. Not many, but yeah. certainly they do exist. Um, they most commonly would come in having had uh, a period of time of tremor or slowing movement or walking difficulties, um, which led to suspicion of some something going on neurologically. Mm-hmm. And referred by a GP, they've gone with symptoms to their GP or somebody's observed it, they've said, you're working a bit strangely, what's going on? Yeah, so mostly through the GP, but a lot of the time, particularly in the older population, um, symptoms would be first noted by families and Mm. they would raise the concern and then they would go to the GP or or ask for a referral to a neurologist. And how do you make a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease? Because there's no sort of um, confirmatory investigation, as I understand it. It's very clinically based. Correct. So the diagnosis is based on the clinical assessment and also um, 
the signs we find on the examination. So the presence of tremor, uh, mm-hmm. it's a common sign, although about 20% of patients will not have any tremor. Um, so slowing the movement is the, the core feature we look for, uh, as well as other um, features like stiffness, walking difficulties, impaired balance. And we also look for a range of other symptoms as well, which support the diagnosis. Uh, so we now know that Parkinson's disease uh, affect not only the movement part of the brain, but also other parts of the nervous system. So often patients will have other non-physical symptoms leading up to the onset of their Parkinson's disease, uh, like sleep disorders, um, constipation, bladder dysfunction, loss of smell. So these are quite common features. And when you take together uh, the presence of these symptoms and also the clinical examination, you can make a uh, you know, reasonably accurate of di- uh, diagnosis of Parkinson's even on the on the first consult. Is there a familial history in this condition? Not necessarily. So most patients, there won't be any family history, but certainly the, the presence of a family history would increase the risk of uh, development of Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, genetic testing? Look, there is some genetic testing available, but um, it at the moment it certainly does not affect the way we treat Parkinson's disease. Um, perhaps in the future that, that may have a role. Mm-hmm. I guess um, in line with EpiPen's question about genetic testing, I guess in the news at the moment, I think one of the Hemsworth brothers recently got diagnosed with um, a or has a predisposition to developing Alzheimer's. I was just wondering, because it's quite you know, alarming, you know, early or mid-30s, you said some people can develop um, Parkinson's. Why might people so young be developing or how Mm. do people and what causes the Mm. development of Parkinson's? Yeah, so patients developing Parkinson's disease in their 30s, 40s, 50s um, almost certainly have a genetic abnormality somewhere. Um, There are a few common genes that we can test for for young-onset Parkinson's disease, Um, but there may well be other genes that we yet to discover. Uh, so I suppose the younger the onset of Parkinson's, the, the higher the likelihood of underlying genetic abnormality. Looking at those genetic um, differences in the people with young onset Parkinson's, does that give you a clue as to perhaps the pathogenesis or the cause in, in the older uh, population, the usual population of people with Parkinson's? Like, can you learn something from those early onset patients to inform the the etiology, the cause of what's going on in the older patients? Um, I suppose the younger patients probably behave slightly differently in terms of their disease compared to the older patients. Um, They do tend to obviously have the disease for a much longer period of time, so often they will have the disease for 30, 40 years. Um, Their response to medication is also a bit more different. The the younger onset patients tend to be much more responsive to medications. Um, they tend to develop dyskinesia, the involuntary movement that is associated with uh, over-treatment, mm. a lot more than the older patients. Um, Can vice- you just tell us what that looks like, dyskinesia? Um, yeah, so it's like a involuntary, irregular dance-like movement, yeah. uh, usually associated with uh, the medications that are hit- hitting the sort of peak level right. with each dose. Yeah. Um, I suppose in the older patients, the often the response uh, can be a little bit... Um, uh, less so than the younger yeah. patients for sure and, and yeah. they don't tend to notice for example if they miss a dose yeah. um, and in the older patients I suppose what that means is often there these also coexisting, coexisting uh, pathologies in the brain that might also contribute to the symptoms because yeah. naturally as, as you age your brain just doesn't work as well and uh, there may be other vascular risk factors that also contribute to uh, walking difficulties and stiffness and that's why they don't respond as well. Mm. Um, well, I just want to circle back to talking about how it's really relying on clinical, mm. there's no biological <clears throat> kind of confirmation. Um, and when malpractice was talking and described the brain as a scone, which was quite mm. revolting word, I thought to just... just oh, oh, it's a colloquial yeah, word. Is it? Scone. Oh, Don't hit your scone. Yeah, so it's sort of oh. from my days in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I think of jam and, <laughs> and it just it goes a bit, goes a bit crazy. Um so perhaps is there are there autopsies or what do perhaps um, analysis of brains show when someone's passed away? Are there structural differences or can you see mm. any biological differences there? Yeah, so I suppose the neurodegenerative disease as a collective involve a process whereby there is deposition of abnormal proteins in the brain. So these proteins are, are normal in uh, normal brains, but in the d- disease state they fold differently and the brain cannot 
um, remove these abnormal proteins, and that's why the accumulation of these proteins lead to uh, particular disease. And the particular disease de depends on the type of protein, but also where those proteins are being deposited. In the context of Parkinson's disease, it's um, a particular protein called alpha-synuclein, which forms something called Lewy body, um, and they get deposited into the movement part of the brain, mm. uh, so-called basal ganglia. Uh, and as the disease progresses, these abnormal proteins uh, affect other parts of the brain, uh, like the visual spatial part of the brain, um, the and, and sometimes also into the uh, more widespread into the frontal part of the brain. So, Lewy bodies are these collections of abnormal proteins in the brain, which which then lead to Parkinson's disease. Is that right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and and so then, why would people with Parkinson's disease get um, constipation? And and uh, you said there are other sort of non-movement disorder symptoms. How does that work? So we now understand that Parkinson's not only affect the brain but affects other parts of the nervous system as well. So often in the early state of the disease, you can actually detect these alpha synuclein um, in the nerve supplying the bowels. Or in oh, the lining really? of the bowels. Yeah. In the lining of the bowels. Correct. Right. Yeah. Is that a new thing? I mean, it's a reasonably new development. Yeah. So there's this now this new concept of the gut-brain axes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the 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 idea is that um, impairment in in the gut well-being can increase the risk of uh, brain disorders, particularly neurodegenerative disorders. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there has been studies showing that uh, patients with inflammatory bowel disease has a high risk of developing Parkinson's. And there's also been studies showing that um, when you do colonoscopy on Parkinson's patients and when yeah. you sample the lining of the bowel, you can often see alpha-synuclein. So that's been actually tutored as a potential diagnostic test oh, right. for Parkinson's mm. as well. Um, you mentioned Lewy bodies. So can you flip into Lewy body dementia when you have Parkinson's? So I suppose you can view Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease as a, as a continuum. Um, so they are both caused by alpha-synuclein. The difference between Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia is the early symptoms. So in Parkinson's patients, they present with the physical symptoms first. Um, and in Lewy body dementia, they present with the cognitive symptoms first, with hallucinations and confusion, much more so than physical symptoms, mm. which tend to come a little bit later on. Mm. Just to it, clarify a few terms. So when we say neurodegenerative, that means brain cells that were there, but then start to um, degenerate, I guess. Um, and when we say cognitive, we, that's just a fancy term for thinking, really, for what the brain does. It can get It can get confusing. I remember when I was studying this, there were all these terms. I was thinking, I've got no idea what's actually going on but if you break it down it kind of actually makes some sense sorry have you been no that's okay thanks mel um <clears throat> so i was just thinking about another movement disorder that we learn about when we um well in nursing and in medical school so huntington's career would you like to talk about that and is it still a phenomenon in society? so huntington's disease is um more of a genetic disorder than Parkinson's. Uh, so we know the gene that causes Huntington's disease, which is the Huntington gene. Um, and the disease itself is quite different to something like Parkinson's. So Huntington's disease presents um, classically with chorea, which means it's a, uh, an excess uh, involuntary movement um, that is classically dance-like, so flowing from one part of the body to the next, uh, often associated with um, other Thinking, dis thinking disorders as well, um, and early onset dementia. Mm. Thanks, Will. We're speaking a lot about, I guess, understanding the disorder. And I remember we briefly learnt about dementia and Parkinson's and related disorders in my psychology training. Um, and I guess I can't remember the name of the – is it dopamine or whatever? Yeah, dopamine I think was – at the time, the big miracle kind of um, area to target in treatment. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how to treat um, Parkinson's and if there are um, kind of things that we could do to, you know, people talk about doing crosswords or Sudoku to help kind of prolong the development of dementia, for example. Is there anything in terms that Parkinson's can be done so in terms of Parkinson's disease treatment, um, at the moment, 
generally for all neurodegenerative diseases, we don't have anything that slows down or stops the progression. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the expectation of these disorders are that they do progress over time. Yeah. Um, and they typically progress over many months to years as opposed to days to weeks, so slowly progressive disorders. In the context of Parkinson's disease, because the primary problem is loss of brain cells that produce dopamine, which the loss of dopamine leads <clears> to <throat> tremor, stiffness, walking difficulties, slowness of movement, etc., the goal of treatment is basically to replace that dopamine in the brain. Um, so we use medications that do that uh, by different mechanisms. Um, the core treatment for Parkinson's is levodopa, which gets converted into dopamine in the brain. But there are various other classes of medications that blocks different enzymes that increase dopamine activity mm-hmm. or directly stimulate the dopamine receptors in the brain. Uh, and treatment of Parkinson's is not just using medications. Yeah. Um, so... In the clinic, we often uh, have uh, involvement of uh, allied health uh, and therapists as well. Uh, so but with a big focus on um, their, their mobility, balance, uh, day-to-day management uh, in, in the home. So uh, exercise is definitely a very important Parkinson's disease, um, particularly exercise that focus on balance, repetitive large movements are very good for Parkinson's. Um, and as the disease progresses, uh, the, the, the focus shifts a lot more to how the patient is managing on a day-to-day basis, and that may require uh, <coughs> assessment by an occupational therapist, for example, mm-hmm. of their house, mm-hmm. making sure that they're reducing their force risk and mm-hmm. you know, carrying their day-to-day activities satisfactorily. Just yesterday, I was sitting in my kitchen having a coffee whilst my wife, who's a physiotherapist, um, was doing a Zoom meeting. She's part of an... Uh, organization that uh dance that that it uses dance as a modality for patients with parkinson's disease and i was listening to her i think it's the mark Marin dance school in new york which started this this huge worldwide organization called dance for parkinson's and i was listening to one of the the instructors who was a former dancer and the way he described things in terms of, you know, freezing, what happens when people freeze, that is, they, people with Parkinson's, they, they, they can't move for a second. And he talked about dance methods of dealing with that, of, you know, taking a step back or using a familiar tune that people know to get them moving. And it was a beautiful way of thinking of the absolutely non-medical way of dancing, of using dance. And so... Um, as I say, my wife's heavily involved in this and has been for years and years and years. And um, I've met some of the people that uh, have used dance with Parkinson's or dance for Parkinson's, and they were just, you know, so committed to it. So I thought I might just mention, if you want to, if you do have Parkinson's or you know somebody with or you're interested, there's danceforparkinsonsaustralia.org, danceforparkinsonsaustralia.org, um, and that'll have uh, all the sorts of details. It's really quite an amazing um quite an amazing undertaking can i just ask one question whilst we've still got your will because i know you have to shoot off you've got uh, dad duties um where's the where's the future heading with parkinson's i keep hearing we're like we're almost on the cusp of a huge discovery so so often tell us where we're going with that so i suppose the focus at the moment still very much on symptomatic treatment of parkinson's uh, so developing various effective treatment to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's. Mm. But I think the holy grails of uh, Parkinson's treatment and indeed for any neurodegenerative diseases is really having reliable tests Mm. um, that we could come back to, whether it's a blood test or or scans of some sort, that we can identify these patients very earlier on in the disease and try to intervene earlier on before Mm. we lose too many neurons. Um, and treatment that actually um, stops the progression of, mm. of the disease itself. Mm. So I think these are two goals of uh, just general neurodegenerative treatment, uh, neurodegenerative disease treatment at the moment. Um, just in closing, um, will where can people get some information? Mm. So um, their support networks or valid um, information sites that people can go to? Um, so... Uh, uh, Parkinson's Victoria, which has recently changed the name to Fight Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. is the local um, support group. Uh, So strongly recommend anyone who has the disorder or someone that they know that have Parkinson's disease to um, uh, contact Parkinson's Mm -hmm. uh, Victoria or Fight Parkinson's either online or or they've got phone lines as well they could talk Mm -hmm. to uh, someone there. Uh, and they have reliable information that they could provide. And also um, they organise talks and education sessions throughout the year. 
Great. I also see a GP if you're worried as well. Absolutely. That's, yeah. you know, GPs are the centerpiece, the keystone in a good healthcare. I do know that we've got about a minute left, Will, and I've been dying to ask you this question to squeeze it in. Did you hear about the, the woman in the UK who could smell diagnosed Parkinson's? Did you? Did you? Am I the only person that's read this? Did I hallucinate <laughs> it? Sounds like a dream. No, it's, no, it's Dinkum. I'm pretty sure. Like, it's Dinkum. Like, she was given, um, I don't know, I think it was 40 bits of material. 20 were from people with Parkinson's disease and 20 with not. And she, um, she's, I'm pretty sure I didn't hallucinate this. And she said, oh, these 20 have got Parkinson's. No, these 21 have got Parkinson's disease. And they said, that's amazing. You got it right all except for this one person. But then a year later, that <gasps> one person who didn't have Parkinson's developed it. Have you not? You're shaking your head. I have no, haven't heard of In that. In the study. journal uh, of Rob's, Rob's hallucinations. <laughs> I'm going to look this up because I'm sure. You've I, mentioned it before. I've mentioned it before. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's yeah. true. Um, no. I'm going to have a look at this and I'll send it to you. And then, because I forgot what a great research study is that. Like, clearly there's some pheromone thing going. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll stop now before I embarrass myself anymore. You, We've been talking with uh, Dr. Wilsey, uh, neurologist, uh, Parkinson's disease and movement specialist. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and we could spend hours chatting. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We have Dr Sam Loy who just told me that I taught her... <laughs> Thankfully, as a psychiatrist, not as a medical student, because that would really hurt oh. me, Sam. <laughs> so lovely to have you in the studio. Thanks for coming in this morning. Oh, this beautiful, I reckon this morning is kind of like as crisp as a Granny Smith. It's yes, beautiful. a beautiful winter morning. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, Sam, hello. Hi. <laughs> nice to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you again. Neither of us have aged at all. Not at all. <laughs> We're still exactly Good the same. radio face. Hey, um, <laughs> we are, okay. are going to do a – we're going to invite Sam to be part yeah. of this quiz. So over yeah. to you, Dr. Kitkat. I did specifically put two questions related to um, dementia and – I guess, neurology, psychiatry in there. So Sam might have a bit of an advantage, but... So let me just tell the audience. Oh, yes. Um, so what we've been doing the last couple of months, and it's been really successful, is um, having a bit of a quiz and the the experts are <laughs> experts, that's what I'm calling us experts, around the table will try and buzz to get the right answer to see who is the best doc on the spot. So over to you, KitKat, Dr. KitKat. All right, the first question... What was the first name of Mr. Alzheimer? Buzz. <gasps> S- no, Sam beat you there. Alois. Yes. Oh. Can I tell you something else about oh. that? He was presenting his paper, his famous paper at the 1920 Turnberg, I think, meeting of psychiatrists, and um, he didn't get asked any questions because the very next paper after his, Lois Alzheimer's, was on masturbation, and the audience was so keen to hear about chronic masturbation. They, they kind of pushed him off the stage and said, that's okay, it's okay. took years later before his wow. results got published. I wasn't going to give bonus points. As you started <laughs> saying that, I was like, oh, boring, boring, boring. But then when you started talking about the masturbation, I was like, oh, wow, that's just <laughs> So I will give you a bonus <laughs> All right, the next question. Oliver Sacks. He's a very well-known neurologist and prolific author. Which of his following books, Uh I'll list three, Uh was turned into an opera? So The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Uncle Tugston, or A Leg to Stand On? Buzz. But All right. Rob? (laughs) Mal? Uncle Tugston? No. (sighs) The Man Who Mistook His Hat for... Wife for a hat. Yes, yes, that's correct. Wife for his wife. So we're one each. Yep. Okay. Final question. Final question. Hang on. We're all one each. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Final question. This is actually when Will started talking about this. Oh, maybe I've given it away now. Never mind. When you blush, what other body part also reddens? Your gut. <gasps> Very good job, EpiPen. Yes. Your stomach lining. Blood also rushes to your stomach lining due to adrenaline being released by the sympathetic nerve system. That is amazing. Well yeah. done, EpiPen. So two to Epi, one to Dr. Sam, one to Mal. <laughs> one <laughs> and a half. One or, and a half. Yeah. yeah. But you know why she knew that? Because 
because Epi and I used to work in the gastro gastro ah. um, sweat years and years ago. So uh, that's how you knew. Yeah. Hey, um, yes. Sam, welcome to our, to our show. <laughs> Did I tell you it's very low-key and kind of fun? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. So there you go. Hey, um, you are a neuropsych psychiatrist and old age psychiatrist i get the old age thing but just explain what a neuropsychiatrist is so we specialize in disorders between the interface between neurology and psychiatry that's why it's neuropsychiatry don't you find though that once you know you find an organic cause for something the neurologists take it over well that's what they say but there's so much more for psychiatrists to do so in terms of looking at symptomatic treatment quality of life looking at care and support Mm -hmm. looking after the patient themselves actually talking to people that's sometimes pretty helpful too I'm sure neurologists talk to people. <laughs> so tell us your area of interest. What what kind of um, what, what sort of clinical work do you do you see during the week? So I work at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and I work at the neuropsychiatry unit, and hence we see many people with these disorders. And the area I'm interested in is people with young onset dementia. So we hear about people with. Older onset dementia, that's your dementia which occurs in people who are older, i.e. older than 65 years old, and we specialise in seeing people who are younger. So the dementia which comes on at less than 65 years old. So there's this strange dichotomy between old and young at the 65 cutoff. So we see the younger folk. Right. And so younger people would have a different form of dementia to older people? So similar to what um, Dr Will was talking about, the young onset dementia can be a little bit different from the older onset dementia Mm. and he talked a bit about the genetic component and there are more so people with the younger onset dementia where there might be more likely a chance of a genetic component but certainly the dementia onset is very different to your older onset types Mm. of which you think about Alzheimer's disease where it's mostly or predominantly short-term memory loss which is a bit more obvious than compared to the younger onset people where they might present with different symptoms um, often psychiatric symptoms, and that's why they're coming to psychiatrists or us first and GPs complaining of depression or anxiety or psychotic disorders even, mm. more so than, say, cognitive difficulties such as memory or disorientation. So this is a dinkum question. I mean, I'm not trying to act silly, but so then how would you define dementia? Because to my way of thinking, dementia, I mean, I go the Latin root means to forget. So I thought to have dementia means you've got to be forgetting things, but it encompasses... I mean, how would you define dementia then? So it's much more broader than that. So, yes, I guess the dementia Latin word might be to forget, but it really is the definition about different cognitive abilities and the impairments of those. So not just memory or Mm. um, forgetfulness, but it could be speech problems or what we call executive dysfunction. So that's sort of the front part of the brain. Mm. So organisation or problems with planning and abstract reasoning, becoming more rigid Mm. Um, and, you know, disorientation and those types of symptoms. But along with the dementia symptoms, the cognitive symptoms, you can also get the non-cognitive symptoms, and that's the behavioural or psychiatric issues. Mm. Um, thanks, Sam. I guess I've just got two questions. You mentioned the young onset, and Dr Will mentioned that people in their mid-30s are coming in with Parkinson's. I was just wondering how young are some of the clients that you see? So we see people probably with onset of dementia more so in their 50s. So that's a lot younger okay. than your 65s or 70-year-olds. There are some rarer dementias which come on a lot earlier than that. So you can get what they call the childhood dementias where they're much younger, such as Neiman Pick Type C um, disorders. But the majority of people we see are mostly 40s and 50s. That's pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. So not as young as 30, but still much younger yeah. than what you'd expect. Um, and I come from a psychological background so, and I get when you were talking about perhaps the young onset dementia, a lot of the symptoms you kind of were referring to reminded me a little bit perhaps of ADHD or other kind of um, psychological disorder and yeah, neurological disorders. And yeah, Dr. Will spoke about how there's no kind of medical confirmation test, a lot of it relies on clinical practice. I imagine that it must be quite tricky to get a diagnosis of young onset dementia and what other differentials. Yeah, so, consider? so that's one of the problems. It can take quite a lot longer to get a diagnosis of young onset dementia. And we call this diagnostic odyssey. So people mm. might present to their GP complaining of depression or anxiety mm. or stress. And yeah, in their 40s or 50s, they can be busy with work and family, etc. So the, the GP might think, you know, correctly so. Let's go mm. and see a psychologist or mm. get some counselling or put you on some medication. 
And so you don't expect to have dementia when you're younger. It's only about 5 to 10% really of all dementias. And so it can take quite a while. So people might have treatments and have various tests, and it can take more than much longer to get a diagnosis than older onset dementia. Are there any triggers? So for, I'm just thinking, illicit drugs or Yeah, potentially. Um, maybe not triggers per se, but, you know, you've got the genetic components. Um, you've got also, um, I guess, other life things. So alcohol can particularly be a risk factor. So head injuries, for example, can put you at higher risk of getting a young onset dementia, but a lot of it you can't tell. Um, and even the, I guess, the genetic forms, you also don't know. They can still be sporadic forms as well. So there's no real trigger you can be i guess unlucky um just yeah. just on that do certain um lifestyle choices um predispose you to to, to dementia like i'm thinking um chronic alcohol use obviously um can cause dementing illnesses but can things like um amphetamine use or other drug use um, predispose you to, to a type of dementia so that's quite interesting. They haven't done a lot of studies, long-term studies, looking at people being followed up over time who've got amphetamine mm. use. And it'd be very interesting to see what happens. I mean, know that in the brain it does cause problems. Obviously, they get very psychotic mm. and impulsive, etc. But as far as I know, I don't think there are any studies mm. yet where they follow them up to see what happens. Mm. Mm. But certainly the cardiovascular disease, that can put you at higher risk. So of, s- smoking, diabetes. Yep. Cholesterol. Weight, yeah. Uh, what about head injuries and, I guess, concussion and stuff? Yes. It's been got a lot of tension in sport recently. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, obviously, the traumatic brain, inju- tra- traumatic brain injuries or repetitive head injuries or head strikes can put you at risk of some kind of cognitive impairment. There is that um, concept of, I think it's chronic traumatic encephalopathy, so CTE, and there's this massive class action where people are going to get sort of compensation. Sure. So, yes, yeah, certainly that can put you at risk of, of dementia um, and even at, and particularly at a younger age as well. Again, there are all these big words. Encephalopathy. Pathy means <laughs> some brain injury. Yeah, something bad's happened to, <laughs> to your brain. Yeah, and your encephalo is your brain. It's just you know, yeah. So there are lots of very complicated words floating around. You know, when people start talking about the brain, which just makes it even harder to understand. I'll keep it really simple. Good. Um, medications or and I have got this is a very naive question, but once you've got dementia, it doesn't go away. Yeah, so I think Dr. Will touched on that as well. So currently there's no cure for dementia. And so for us, it's all about enhancing and improving people's quality of life. So it's about trying to get the diagnosis as early as possible Mm -hmm. and then think about how that can get the family and the person involved to live their life to the fullest. So, for example, it's knowing that you can have dementia at all ends of the spectrum. So obviously dementia where you might have to be in a nursing home, but you can have dementia at a mild stage and still have dementia and still work, look after mm. kids and drive, etc. So that information is actually really important mm. for people wow. to know and also about improving stigma. So knowing mm. that people can have dementia and actually still live well, that's really important. There are some tablets, though, that slow down the progression of in Alzheimer's disease, no? So that's very controversial. So, oh, ab- really? Well, there are a few medications which are cholinesterase inhibitors, yeah. and that's currently thought to improve acetylcholine. So they're, they're sort of your dinepazil or memantine, which is another yeah. different type. There's been a number of drug trials um, which oh. have looked at particular medications which have been given, I guess, TGA approval, yeah. um, and that's the denaminab or lecanemab, those types of medications which have been approved for Alzheimer's disease. And that's a bit controversial because... The clinical trials might not have shown that the endpoints oh. were as... Is that what you were referring no, no. to? No, so no. So the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors we've been using for a while, for, ages, for about yeah. 20 years. and they've, they, They're they, okay. Yeah. But then with the MABs, um, uh, yeah, I remember hearing about this last year that, um, it, yeah, that, 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 that they weren't... 100% conclusive? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's trials? right. Yeah, for so everybody? I, yeah. yeah, so I think they reanalyzed the results a second time and found different endpoints. Mm. Um, and so, for, for example, if you have a lot of money and you can access treatment, you need to have an MRI, you need to be infused. So you've actually got to go into the hospital and get an infusion of the drug. So I think currently really in the most probably well-off people can get that. And you need to get a brain or an MRI scan every month because there's a particular side effect which can cause brain swelling. So it's quite intense. So you have to be a particular dwelling, metropolitan dwelling person. Yeah. Can I just just on that? So a MAB is a monoclonal antibody, which which is an antibody made against something. What's What's it made against? 
I just went off there. What's it made against for um, for Alzheimer's? Is there a particular protein it's made against? Or do we know? No. I think <laughs> <laughs> a, a protein. But then, okay, this is the other. No, this is the, this is the real question I want to ask you. That was a side question. The real question is: I was taught in medical school. Granted, it was prehistoric medical school that antibodies don't cross the the blood brain barrier. That's why they've got to infuse them via lumbar punctures. <gasps> I think. Oh, it goes. Oh, we may do. We don't know. We're going to come back. So. To, we're going to come back to you on <laughs> yeah, that. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll check that. <laughs> well, like, it's not a common treatment, is what you're saying nowadays. The matter. No, it's yeah. you have to have special application. Only yeah, yeah. certain centres have it. There's lots and lots of rules and regulations about yeah. this infusion. Yeah. Can I just ask what? No, no. Sorry, I'm I'm hogging the show. Go ahead, EpiPen. <laughs> I'm just going to just get very interested. Yeah, in this I know, stuff. I know. Well, you have a coffee with her after. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Eppie. We Sorry. all will. Sorry. Um, so you said that you would comment about the type of um, neurological disorder that Bruce Willis has oh, got. Oh, yes. Okay. So that's interesting. So he has a primary progressive aphasia, and so I think you, I think he's about 68 years old. So I think. This year, they, the family released the news that he had this primary progressive aphasia, which is actually a type of frontal temporal dementia. Mm. Last year, they informed everybody that he had aphasia, right. which is sort of a broad term for a problem with language. Yeah. yeah. So aphasia means difficulties speaking or with language, really. Yep. Primary progressive means we don't know the cause. That's primary. So I'm deciphering all this brain <laughs> lingo. Primary means we don't know the cause. Progressive means obviously it gets worse. Aphasia is aphasia. And then frontotemporal dementia means it's, 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 you've got four lobes in your brain, the frontal, the parietal, temporal occipital. and occipital. Thank you. And so it's the frontal and temporal, which are, which are primarily affected, as compared to Alzheimer's disease, which affects temporal, other, yeah. Yeah, which is more temporal. Yeah, right. So that's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's it, so what could the family expect? Not that you know his personal yeah. details, but typically with, with frontotemporal dementia, what, what sort of things happen? So frontal temporal dementia is one of the more commoner young onset dementias, right. so second to Alzheimer's disease still, and it consists of the two main types of frontal temporal dementias, or FTD. So there's the behavioural variant, which is not what Bruce Willis has, but mm. we see a lot at neuropsychiatry of the psychiatric issues. Yeah. But the less common type of FTD are the language types, or mm. the prog- primary progressive aphasias, and then there's a couple of types of those. So there's semantic dementia, which are problems with the meanings of the words, right. and then your non-fluent progressive aphasias, which is problems with the sort of the speech and the, the way you pronounce or, or bring, take the words out. Right. I'm not sure which type yeah. of primary progressive aphasia Bruce Willis has, whether it's the semantic or the non-fluent type. I imagine that would have been picked up earlier than yeah. other people because he's an actor, so he has That's to remember right. lines, so it That's would have correct. really impacted on his day. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr. Sam Loy, has, um, she hasn't run out of the studio because <laughs> we're all grabbing at her saying, Sam, stop. Um, we want to know, Sam, so there are lots of different dementias and dementia means... Um, some problem with your thinking processes in your in your brain, and that can affect diff- dementia can affect different parts of the brain, and therefore present in different ways. So we know that there's, as you mentioned before, frontotemporal dementia. There's Alzheimer's dementia. Can you just take us through in like five minutes <laughs> the different? I know it's a big topic. The the different types of dementias and, and how they might present. To a, okay. to a doctor. So that's a pretty big question. Sorry, Are you looking... Question. Okay, so in general, so in Alzheimer's general. disease yeah. would predominantly present with the memory problems, your short-term memory or disorientation. That's right. your kind of main symptom, especially in older people. Right. In younger people... people so just to, just, to get, just to get the... So Alzheimer's tends to present early uh, when it presents with, with, with short-term memory problems, like where did I put my keys? That's correct. Um, where is the the... The street Passport. I used to go to. But where's the past? Yeah, things like that's that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's Alzheimer's. That's how it starts. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And Alzheimer's disease is caused by abnormality and accumulation of proteins amyloid and tau. Okay. Oh, more so that's, that's, that's the pathology. Like, right, okay. So this pathology, amyloid and tau, Alzheimer's disease, can also cause other problems. So, for example, in younger people, it can accumulate not in the memory parts, like in the older onset, Alzheimer's disease, but in, say, 
the back part of the brain, the occipital lobes, and that can actually cause people to have visual spatial problems. Really? So it's very different. So they don't often present with memory issues, but they might actually go to an optometrist first because they can't see or they can't read. So it's very different. I've got a question. We were talking about Bruce Willis before, and I mentioned one of the Hemsworth brothers has been diagnosed or has the genetic predisposition. With Do you, um, I guess, are those conversations about testing for, I guess, family um, predispositions to Alzheimer's, is that something that you do in your practice? And I guess if you have been identified as having a genetic predisposition, is it just a bit of a waiting game for when it the onset is or when first symptoms kind of arise? So interestingly, so you're, as to your first question, so I think what you're talking about is, is one of the Hemsworth, I'm not sure which one it was, they were doing some interesting fitness program and they yes. had a test for APOE4 and they found out that they had this particular um, allele. So that uh, gives you a slight increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And interestingly with that, you don't really know when you might get the disease. So it's a mm-hmm. bit different. So they don't test for that particular gene regularly because it's really unclear about when you might have the onset. So it's very different from, say, an autosomal dominant. So when you might have a 50% chance risk of getting a, a dementia, for example. So some dementias, like these FTDs, which I talked about before, some of these, you do have a risk. You can get a genetic predisposition where you have a 50% risk of developing the dementia, for example, with these particular genes. And we do do these types of predictive testing or gene testing in our clinic. But you might just never know whether you'll get it or when it will start or... That's right. Like that. So yeah. it's quite interesting that you may not know that you have the dementia because your parent may have had it and it might have been seen as something else. So in, oh, I guess, the olden right. days, people might have died or something else before they got dementia. Right, Some dementia are a little bit rarer. So, for example, we talked about Huntington's with Dr yeah. Will... Before, people didn't know what Huntington's was, so people might have thought, oh, they died of, say, Parkinson's disease or dementia. And these people often have had children because, you know, you don't have the onset, you don't know that you've got the gene. So you often have kids and then you pass on the gene potentially to the next generation. So you may not know. And so you don't know when you might get it, what the symptoms are, et cetera, apart from getting the testing. So it's quite complicated. So you really need quite sophisticated genetic testing and counselling to have that conversation. So there are some genes which will say you're definitely going to get... Yes. If you Like, say, with Huntington's, if you've got the gene, then you're definitely going to get it type of thing, but, yeah. It's just a matter of time. It's time and and so forth. But there are some other genes which say, well, there's a bit of a risk, but we don't know how much, and there's other genes which is kind of like there is a tiny risk, but we're not Mm. quite sure how that fits in. So exactly as you say, you need a genetic counsellor to to sort through all those um, very, very complicated issues. I mean, the people that you see... um, I'm sure, well, you see a, a broad range of people and you give them, obviously, as you said, advice, uh, you know, um, uh, day-to-day advice. Could you give us some advice about preventing, like how do we actually prevent getting dementia? You know, dementia yeah. So I was going to joke and say don't live long enough, but, <laughs> but because we're <laughs> ageing, the biggest risk factor for developing dementia is pretty much age. But there is actually a lot of good news that there's lots of things you can do to try and, I guess, guess prolong it or prevent or put it put the onset on later. Yeah. So been, there was a paper recently by Jill Livingston. They, they call it the Lancet um, Prevention and Care on Dementia. They talked about a number of preventative factors. So things like, obviously, heart disease, so cholesterol, diabetes, exercise, etc. They also talk about education. So trying to, I guess, give people as many years of education as possible can so also potentially... Like so child, go to school, so, finishing but, school. So basically... In your teenage years, mm. the more education you get there will act 50 years later to Hopefully. Prevent. There is a bit of a caveat to that, which is quite complicated. But in general... I don't, I don't like caveats. More, more <laughs> educational years is better. Right. Um, and then they talk about things like alcohol. So don't drink too much, which, which we kind of know is boring. But you say too much? I mean, is that like more than a glass of wine? Are we talking about the NHR Probably what, guidelines? Yeah, the guidelines. I the think guidelines. it's two drinks a day, standard yeah, drinks. Okay. You've got to have some alcohol-free days. Yeah. Cool. So, and okay. then they talk about hearing. So they really need you to get hearing? your hearing. Make sure you get your hearing checked. Get out so of good hearing. Yeah, good hearing. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> Surprised you didn't get nice. me there now. <laughs> <laughs> um, really? Because that like, what does that mean? More stimulation, more engagement in the world? Is that yeah, what and oh. less social isolation. So oh. you're engaging with people, you can hear better, etc. And then with the other extreme end, what about people who 
damage their hearing. That's interesting. I'm not sure mm. about that. Okay. Who knows? Oh, are yeah, they that's more interesting. likely to yeah. have dementia? Wow. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And then the head, inju- head injury was also something they talked about. Don't hit your head. Mm. What about <laughs> things like I, Penny and I uh, – sorry, EpiPen and I were talking during the work about things like um, – Doing Sudoku. And she said, no, no, it's not just Sudoku. Cryptic, cryptic you told me Brain training. Yeah. Yeah. Use what? your left hand for your mouse. Um, Brush your teeth with your Learn a language. Oh, mouse. See, on the phone I thought you said mouth. I'm thinking, what am I I thought you said mouth. mouth as well. Yeah. Mouse. 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 Right. So, so when you're at the computer, swap your hands over. Is there evidence for this, mm. Sam? Oh, oh, back bra- me up, Sam. Oh, gosh. So there is, you know, brain training is good Anecdotal. for you. Depends. Anecdotally, there are trials. That the evidence is probably mixed. So they talk about stimulation. If you've got some mild impairment, can you do these things to improve your brain? I think the jury's still out. I think various people would like to say yes. I think it depends on the kinds of puzzles or activities you're doing. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's tricky. I think it's about keeping engaged, isn't it? Dr Nick, who does a show, he says that there is some evidence. I don't know if they've been a randomised control trial or something, but it's to open up, and I've read this, you open up different pathways in the neurological system. Sort of pruning and and connections. Yes, yes, because you're doing things differently. Long-term potentiation. Yeah. Yeah. I also – this is the reason – well, no, hang on – the, the motivation my wife tells me to start, because I'm not a dancer, I don't like dancing, but she keeps saying it staves off dementia, it staves off dementia. And is Parkinson's. It, and Parkinson's, well, yeah. <laughs> is that true? Does dancing... Oh, well, gosh. They, talk, they say that physical activity is good for you and that it can, in some trials it can perhaps slow down the, the, on, the inevitable pr- progression of dementia. So some trials might say so. I think, again, they've done some recent meta-analysis where the jury is out on that topic. Right. Actually, so I think it's still a bit out there. I think doing exercise is good for you. Well, I thought. I thought. I mean, mm. my thinking was that it's complex movements, and it's you know, you, I can, I'm doing all the counting in my head, mm. and it's socially engaged right. with other people yeah, and right. hearing so you're stuff, learning, yes. and you're learning stuff that way. And in ba- and it's good to have people laugh at you. But you've got to enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. So you can't do something which you're not going to like. Can I tell you how much I do not enjoy it (laughs) on it? We actually had another topic we're going to discuss with you, but we can't because we've only got a minute left. So quick questions from my panel. Um, Yes, I have a quick question. Might not that quick, but I'll say it really quick. You mentioned, I guess, the hearing and, like, the socialisation. and I imagine in the dancing and enjoy it. I imagine there's a lot of mental health kind of things that would also contribute to the development or kind of the prolonging the development of um, uh, not Parkinson's dementia. Dementia. Yes, so there is some evidence perhaps that late sort of midlife depression, for example, could be a precursor to dementia. There's a little bit of stuff about that. So if someone presents with with depression, they haven't had depression, maybe that's sort of the dementia onset. For example, oh. yeah. Uh, and where can you go for some support if Excellent you're worried? Question. Yes. Yeah. So um, GP. Yep. Go to them first. Beautiful. There's Dementia Australia. We all know about Dementia Australia. They're sort of the peak organisation. So Google Dementia Australia. Yep. 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 And then there's a couple other sort of similar type dementia support programs. And how would people find you? I'm at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Neuropsychiatry. Nice. And the University of Melbourne. That's uh, right. Seeing See, patients I, I read the, at Royal I, Melbourne. I read the bio. Yes. I read the bio. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Saham <laughs> Lloyd. You. It has been such a treat having yeah. you. In, uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and we're going to get you back now. Um, you have been listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with me, Dr. Mal, also with Dr. Kit Kat and Nurse EpiPen. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.